The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. It's Friday, June 6th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The air conditioning broke down in game one of the NBA Finals last night in San Antonio. So the heat went down as the heat went up in a turn of events that could have made for easier headlines only if LeBron James were instead Wilt Chamberlain. (laughs) The Spurs beat the heat and the heat also beat the heat. After the game, NBA president of operations Rod Thorne seemed really reticent to say the word hot. That was very... Uh, very uh, warm. Uh, the people sitting around me said uh, they thought it was warmer than, you know, than certainly than normal. But during the game, they were covering the sweltering conditions as if the Hindenburg were on fire. Court reporter Doris Burke was all over the situation. The announcers rightly dwelled on it. And it occurred to me that this game broadcast on ABC probably represented the single biggest chunk the network has ever given to the issue of warming. I tweeted a pie graph labeled ABC reporting on warming areas of the globe by minutes of airtime, fjords, nine minutes, icebergs, 11 minutes, and the AT&T arena in San Antonio, 80 minutes. But I was just making a joke. It turns out in real life, I was way off. The length of the game last night was two hours, 29 minutes. The stifling conditions were noticeable early on. And then I contacted Andrew Tyndall, who watches and chronicles every minute of network news. And Tyndall told me, quote, ABC World News reporters aired only two segments, five minutes in total, specifically on global warming so far this year. One of those ABC News reports was how UN scientists definitively have concluded that the Earth is warming, and even more importantly, that there's clearly human causes. There was nothing wrong with the piece. But during the entire length of the report, a chyron on the screen read, is global warming here? Question mark. Now, you'd have to conclude yes if you were listening to the report, but visuals matter. Why not just write, global warming is here? And those two minutes, again, were about half of ABC's global warming coverage up until the NBA Finals, if you want to count it as that. Maybe ABC Sports will go with a, is Tim Duncan tall graphic all throughout Game 2, which is scheduled for Saturday in San Antonio. And where, they assure us, the AC will be working. On today's show, Stephen Dubner of Freakonomics. And speaking of Freakonomics, free donut today, a just undercover investigation. But now a conversation about politicization. And I have to warn you, the content of the conversation, I stand behind that. It's good conversation. But you will be distracted by the fact that I cannot pronounce the topic we're talking about. Politicization politicization. That was close, right? Go ahead, you try it. Yeah, you nailed it. I stink at talking. Benghazi says Hillary Clinton has been politicized. The new immigration bill says the Heritage Foundation, quote, threatens to politicize national security. The latest issue to be politicized is the rescue of U.S. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. Here's Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Unfortunately, though, Mr. President, opponents of President Obama have seized upon the release of an American prisoner of war. That's what he was. 
using what should be a moment of unity and celebration of our nation as a chance to play political games. The safe return of American soldiers should not be used for political points. This seems like a weird and essentially pointless charge to me. A politician refers to the political content coming from the mouth of a fellow politician and says, you're politicizing. Isn't that like the Raiders criticizing the Cowboys for touchdown making? Also, it seems that politicization, politicization, I'm telling you, I'm not good at this. Hold on. Also, it seems that politicizing is just a hard for me to pronounce way of saying failed argument put forth by a politician. Or maybe as British MP Louise Mensch recently tweeted, when a politician does something egregiously wrong, his or her party always replies, you're trying to politicize this. So if you want to talk about politicizing, you better turn to Politico. So we do in the form of Susan Glasser, editor of Politico magazine. She's a former editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine. Before that, she covered the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq for the Washington Post. She was also the Moscow bureau chief. Hello, Susan Glasser. Hi, how are you? I'm great, but maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe I should be worried that everything's being politicized. Why is everyone always charging other politicians with politicizing things? Well, you know, uh, if uh, politicization were against the law, Washington uh, would be <laughs> in, in pretty much trouble, I think. Uh, you know, clearly uh, the industry of Washington is politicizing things, and that's been true uh, going back to the very uh, founding of the republic. So I think you should take your umbrage with a good dose of uh, perspective. Politicians, from what I know, they maybe will self-aggrandize and call themselves public servants, but they usually don't mind being called politicians, in my experience. How about yours? No, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the truth is, though, that nobody likes to be uh, criticized for doing something for partisan gain, which is exactly uh, what is most of what these politicians are doing. I know, but if you're a politician, and if your field is politics, then why logically would politicians politicization or politicization be a charge that would even hurt. It doesn't even make sense to me. (laughs) Well, it's a good point, but I think there's a feeling that the voters don't like it. And Mm -hmm. so uh, the reason it's thrown about as an epithet, as a negative term, uh, is because the American people say that they don't want it. I look at the Benghazi Select Committee. So when Nancy Pelosi objects to politicizing Benghazi, what are the strengths of her argument and what are the weaknesses? Well, when you say politicizing Benghazi, I mean, it it, it only existed, frankly, as a political issue. The the actual issue of uh, what happened uh, on that that sort of tragic day in, in Libya has already been more or less well established, factually speaking. So there is no issue, in fact, of Benghazi beyond the politics at this point. And I think that's that's pretty clear, uh, yeah. frankly. Okay, let's talk about the VA. Now, that quote uh, where the paralyzed veterans of America were criticizing Richard Burr, saying that the maybe the Republicans were politicizing the VA. So at some point, it the criticisms went beyond the Republicans, went to maybe some red state Democrats, and then they just became ubiquitous. So is it the case that when politicization becomes ubiquitous, then it's no longer politicized? Politicized can only mean that one side objects to whatever the issue is? Well, I think I actually I think that's a that's a good observation on your part. Um, it does strike me that the difference with the VA scandal is that, you know, there's an underlying fact set that is, A, both deeply troubling to to people uh, in, in both parties and across the political spectrum. I think that Barack Obama was telling the truth when he said that, that he was deeply 
uh, troubled by this and that this was something that uh, was outside of the sort of finger-pointing partisan blame game but was something that really was much more akin to a national scandal. And uh, the facts do seem to suggest that. And so, you know, in in this case, when you talk about politicizing uh, the, the VA scandal, I think there's there's much less to go on. It's It's a scandal because there's an underlying set of facts that point pretty strongly to willful mismanagement and, you know, sort of the poor running of the government. The big one in the news is politicizing the Bergdahl release or transfer. It's touched a nerve with a lot of people. Isn't this at least, can we not acknowledge that this is something that should be debated and that reasonable people can disagree on? Well, look, I think that uh, is it the role of the opposition, the loyal opposition in this government or in any democracy to ask questions and to hold the leadership uh, accountable. And I think it is very fair to ask questions of President Obama about how this uh, trade came about, what was his decision-making, what was the process that led up to it, uh, what were the disagreements inside of his administration, and how did he resolve those. Uh, Those are fair and important questions to ask. Now, I think when you start to hear some of the crazy stuff that's being said right now, look at Lindsey Graham trying to make the linkage between Benghazi and uh, the release of the prisoner Bergdahl, uh, simply because it's two things that the Obama administration has done that he doesn't like. Yes. (laughs) Uh, That's where I think you can start to talk about politicization. Do you think this charge is just sort of a reflexive thing in the bag of tricks of politicians and the people who talk about politics, like a charge they pull out and don't really think about? Or do you think they've done maybe some polling, some testing, and they found out that it's a really potent charge? And that's why, at least I perceive, that charges of politicization, politicization, never going to get it right, are on the uh, increase. Well, you know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't definitively know the answer to it. My, my strong suspicion uh, is that it's just how the game is played and that if you actually pull back and look at what wins and loses elections, guess what? It's been the same thing that it's been forever, which is to say the economy, how people feel about their own prospects and what's going on in their lives and the immediate world around them, uh, foreign policy, national security, except in very, very rare occasions of national crisis just doesn't factor in to the big picture of who wins and loses elections. And so a lot of this is is inside the Beltway posturing. All right. Well, thank you for uh, politicizing this segment with us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And politico-sizing. Susan Glasser is the editor of Politico magazine. Thanks again. Thank you. So we're sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. And we want to thank Squarespace for sponsoring us, and we think we have a pretty good deal for you. They will give you a free trial. They'll give you 10% off. So you go to squarespace.com slash gist and enter gist as the show code at checkout. Squarespace is simple and it's easy and it's beautiful. There's drag and drop content. As an experiment, producer Andrea Salenzi has signed up. Can we disclose that, Andrea? Well, I haven't built the website yet, but when I do, it'll be really easy. When you do, is it going to be fago.ninja? What are you going for? (laughs) (laughs) So let's say Andrea, obsessed as she is with the insane clown posse, gets some grease paint in her eye, and she needs some support. Well, 24-7, there is support around the clock, right? It's located in New York City and Dublin. You call any of these people yet? I don't need to. It's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy, yes. Plans start at $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. 
You can start a trial with no credit card required. You can start building your website today. When you sign up, as Andrea did, go to squarespace.com slash gist and put in the gist at checkout. That's 10% off. Thank you, Squarespace, for sponsoring the show, for bringing Andrea's insane clown posse dreams to light, for recognizing that magnets are indeed magic. Squarespace, a better web, starts with your website. Along with Stephen D. Levitt, Stephen J. Dubner is author of Think Like a Freak. Hello, Mr. Dubner. How Hello, are you? Mr. Mr. Pesca. So I listen to your radio show all the time, and I read your books, and I have a big... Sounds like a chore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the books have been read, and I have a general question. So what's great about this is you take economics, or as you call them, freakonomics, and you make them palatable and you give them life lessons. But sometimes, And sometimes it's there, but sometimes there's not an imposition of narrative, but you've got to find where the narrative is. I guess my question is, you know, how much of your job is that? Is to take, mm-hmm. well, that's a great study, but what makes that a great story? Yeah. So you, you've just identified uh, and distilled what we try to do, which is basically you gave away the secret sauce. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks a lot. So, yeah. So, look, what we do is I feel is pretty obvious, really. It's storytelling of the narrative nonfiction variety, which is the tradition I grew up in as a journalist, married to um, data and an economic way of thinking, which is the tradition that my co-author Steve Levitt grew up in. So honestly... What you're seeing is really nothing more than a Reese's peanut butter cup. It was two things that have been done by many, 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 many people individually. There's the peanut butter people and there's the chocolate people, or in our case, the economics people and the journalism people. And we formed a partnership. A lot of times, you know, we'll do something, a radio show or a chapter in a book or a column or something, and people write and say, that's not Freakonomics. You know, I, I remember once we wrote a, a column about uh, uh, whether there should be a, a, a legal market for organs, right. right? Because the organ donation system is very, very, very flawed in many ways. And there's one country in the world that has a market, which happens to be Iran, which is a strange and very, very interesting situation. So I remember we wrote that, but we could write almost anything. And inevitably, five people are going to say, that's not Freakonomics. That's blah, blah, blah. This is what Freakonomics is. And then they tell us what Freakonomics is. <laughs> <laughs> which I get a kick out of. I get a kick yeah. out of people feeling ownership. And to me, Freakonomics... Well, people call it by glass and are like, that's not that American exactly. life. It's, it's exactly, this. It's yeah, exactly. yeah. So like, I would answer, if I were Ira, yeah. I would give the same answer that I'm going to give for us. And what Freakonomics is, is something that the two of us decide we want to write about. That's it. Yes, yes. So yeah, there are tools, but they're pretty, they're pretty standard, off-the-shelf tools, which are narrative journalism, where you interview a bunch of people. My co-author, like I said, Levitt, works really hard in a different sphere than we mush it up and we have fun doing it. How much of your life now is thinking about audio and how much is thinking about print? You know, it's really, this is so, the fact that you're asking this question, you know, this month is really relevant because we have this new book out and people still buy books, thank God, but it's changed. And we have this podcast that we've done for, I guess, four years now, which is free. So we don't charge for that at all. There's some advertising and and stuff like that. But it's amazing because there's a lot of stuff in the book that we kind of did in rough form in the podcast. And now there's a different dynamic where people are saying, oh, man, I can get this all for free on the podcast. Why do I need to buy the book? Which honestly, I may be naive, but it's something I hadn't really thought about. So theoretically, if one were to start from scratch as a writer, as a free economics writer right now, I might think if I were chasing the money, which is not usually the first concern, but it's a concern. You need to get paid for your work. If I were chasing the money... 
in a way, a podcast audience is a better audience than a book audience. There are more of them. They are they they live in a channel. They they choose to live in a channel. Book buying, other than the Amazon channel, um, but that's not as captive. It's not a subscription channel. So you it, you don't identify yourself as oh I'm on Amazon like you do. Oh I'm a listener of yeah Freakonomics, right. This American Life, that's Radio right. Lab, The yeah. Gist, The Gist, uh, The Gist, The Gist. Uh, <laughs> let's say it more. So um, so no the the way my life has been for the past I'd say four years has been roughly fifteen to twenty hours a week podcasting, and then roughly thirty to forty hours a week pursuing. You know, the book, whatever the book I'm going on. So that that's a slightly longish week, but I like to work. Has that change changed how you think? It needs to, because right now with this book done and out, I need to think about, you know, do you go in search of stories so that they become podcasts first? Exactly, or yes. do you, um, you know, uh, some of our readers have told us that they only want to buy a book if they've never heard about any of the stories in it before. Now, what's Ironic to me about that is that when we wrote our first book, Freakonomics, almost every story in that book was told in short version in this New York Times article that I wrote about Levitt. So what this uh, reader or listener uh, who you uh, posit, what they'd like is dozens and dozens of captivating stories in all different audio form that they didn't know how they would end up. They all also have to have a lot of academic rigor behind them. Yeah. So that's all they want. And, like and, hundreds of these stories. And free, please, yeah. forever. Yes, in perpetuity. Yeah, nothing more than that. So in the book and in other things, you talk about the value of spending time thinking in Richard Ben Kramer's, I think, What It Takes, Gary Hart talked about this a lot, that like as he was running for president, he just couldn't think anymore. Um, he didn't have time to think. He, he needed to work out actual physical a space where he thought rather than just assume that it would happen. And in the New York Times, in their Week in Review section, they had a list of the biggest complaints about job holders yeah. and like time to 71% think. 71% had no time to think or strategize. Exactly. Isn't that frightening? So yeah. give, me, give me some strategies about strategizing and thinking. So one thing we try to do in this book is point out how everybody's biased and that includes us. So one way that we're biased is we may think that there's an optimal way and we may think it's optimal because that's the way we try to go for it. And we are in a rare and lucky position that I'm a writer. I don't have to go to an office every day. I don't have to have meetings all the time. My co-author co co Levitt is an academic. He does have some meetings, but he's got a lot. I mean, you know how little professors actually work. They almost never teach. So we both have built into our day, our job really yeah. is to think. And we realize it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, you should spend more time thinking. It's not that way. What I will say is this, what I find, so when I do spend time in an office about you know one and a half days a week, I find that this there's a sort of egalitarianism that really works against um, uh, maximal productivity. What I mean by that is because we all want to kind of be along and get along and not have nobody have rank that's superior or inferior to everybody, everybody kind of does everything. I think that's nuts. I think specialization is one of the greatest improvements that humankind has ever come up with. I'm better at something. Yeah. I'm going to do a lot of it. You're worse at something. You're not going to do it. Or Well, Wealth of Nations wealth in of 1776 nation, right. was so like, pretty strong on this point. So like yeah. if some if you're 
the top person or near the top on some project or whatever it is, and you have skills that other people don't have, then you know what? You should not be spending your time doing the stuff that other people can do and are getting paid to do. But out of a desire to be kind and polite and whatnot. An egalitarian, kind of, an egalitarian, an American. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's really a mistake. Um, I think it's a mistake on a number of ways, but especially from a productivity standpoint. So if the boss who's the only person who can do this thing, if she is expected to go to all the birthday parties and to you know hold the hands for everybody as they're doing, I, I think that kind of thing. So I really believe in delegation as much as possible. I don't find it degrading. Man, I mean, I, I started working when I was about 11, 12, 13, doing, growing up in the country doing the crappiest crap jobs possible, including crap, you know, shoveling manure a lot. And like, you know, you do what you do at whatever stage. And if you don't like it, then you work really hard to get out of it. But I think there's a lot to be said for building a way around yourself to make time to do the thing that only you are good at or that you're better than everybody else. And you know what? Sometimes you have to be rude. Sometimes you have to just help, you know, wear your headphones a lot so that people don't talk to you. That's what I do. Well, listen for uh, Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt's new peer-reviewed study on manure shoveling, which is going to be coming out. <laughs> the book is Think Like a Freak. The podcast is Freakonomics. Stephen Dubner was here talking to me. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Walk into Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts gonna walk into, walk into Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah! Yes, as me singing as I walk on the street might have alerted you, today is National Donut Day. You probably heard that all over the news. It's D-Day, and that means Donut Day. Wait, there was another D-Day? Who knew? Anyway, National Donut Day. Wait, wait, wait. Tim Hortons... The Tim Hortons that are in Canada, which are most of the Tim Hortons, are also giving out some free donuts. I guess that makes it International Donut Day. But anyway, you go to Krispy Kreme, you go to the store, you say, can I have a free donut? They say, yeah, I learned that on the website. I didn't go to a Krispy Kreme store. One of the reasons I stay away from Krispy Kreme is the double Ks. I know that, you know, linguistically, it's a hack convention. I'll give you that. But when at least one of the words that you are now starting with a K actually in real life begins with a K... That is, I'm not going to call it acceptable, but understandable. You know, I can not empathize with it, but I could shake my head and understood why you got trapped. But when neither word in real life starts with a K, why are you doing that? Unacceptable. So anyway, Krispy Kreme, Tim Hortons, free donut. Dunkin' Donuts, on the other hand, well, let me read their tweet. Stop by today for a free donut with any beverage purchase. The Boston Globe's Douglas Saffer was on this. See? They're happy to not charge you for your donut, but only if you give them money first. That is not free. That is spending money in order to receive a donut, commonly known by the simpler description, buying a donut. He's right. So with this in mind, an idea, no, a mission was born. I was going undercover. I was going to enter a Dunkin' Donuts. I was going to ask for a free donut. And then I was going to wait until the crawlers hit the fan. Because now I'm a consumer advocate. The gist is on your side. Shame, shame, shame on donuts. And I'm wagging my big finger. That's what the guy on CBS does. Anyway, this is your tip off to a ripoff. Woohoo! So here I am. I'm inside Dunkin' Donuts. There's a lot of people around me. They don't even know that it's donut day. Free donuts today, right? All right. 
There aren't any signs that it's donut day. There's no way anyone would be able to tell that it's donut day. So I tell the guys online, I'm on a mission of shame and education. shame education. That's what the Catholic schools do, I guess. So I get to the front and here's how it goes down. Get ready. You're going under the gistoscope, Dunkin' Donuts. Can't get away with your ad hoc definitions of free. I've got my secret recording equipment. It's known as an iPhone. You probably have one, too. So that's why it sounds crappy, but I'll, uh, I'll try to translate. Yes, hello. Free donut today? So I ask for a donut. I wait for the whole, only with a beverage, sir. No. She just says, okay, what kind of donut? How about one of the green ones? I mean, I'm a little bit thrown. So I picked the green one. I picked the shamrock one. That was a good choice. Free donut. All right. Now, how do you, how do you make sure... I don't come back. The lady says, nah, I trust you. Trust. Trust. All right, thanks a lot. Free donut! Wow, was that unsatisfying. I didn't get to shame them. I didn't even get to look at the beverage menu. The beverage menu that includes the perfect blend of everything that's delicious in the world, our signature frozen coffee flavor with delicious Oreo cookie pieces mixed in. Would you like some whipped cream on your Oreo culotta? No, because that would be indulgent. Jesus, America! Coffee is not a milkshake. But Dunkin' Donuts, at least this one, they will give you the free donut. They won't tell you about it beforehand, but I got a free donut. Free. Words matter. Which brings me to the results of Wednesday's challenge, where I constructed the ultimate Democratic and Republican paragraphs full of highly partisan phrases found in the congressional record. So Andrea's going to come in. She'll be voicing the phrases that pays. And your job then, you could do it now, is to see what is a Democratic paragraph and what is a GOP paragraph. First paragraph up, Bachelor. TV's The Bachelor committed such an abuse of power that the poor people known as bachelorettes couldn't choke back their bile as they dealt with Juan Pablo, a Venezuelan Lothario picked to increase viewership in domestic South American and Central American TV markets. So the producers, most of whom had lost their jobs while working on the Shahs of Beverly Hills, had to change the rules. They instituted a system of checks and balances and restored order with simple common sense reforms, including the stipulation that every contestant could kick Juan Pablo just once in the body part of his choosing. And that was the, you want to guess? I've been convinced that that's the Democrat one. But yeah, that's the Democrat really? one. Yeah, they mentioned poor people. That maybe gave it away. There were a couple of red herrings in there, like simple common sense reforms. That's not from the congressional record. But anyway, here's one called Stamp. Now you know this is the Republican paragraph. Here we go. The United States Postal Service has issued a stamp honoring cisterns. The either above ground or sometimes underground storage tank is credited with a million jobs created. Unlike a septic tank, the cistern increases the gross national product without containing too gross of a product. This is the third time the post office tried to honor the cistern, but in the past, toilets and artisanal wells were deemed apt subjects for stamps. So, as I said, that was the Republican one. Third time. Yeah, those Republicans are always saying third time. (laughs) 
And that's it for the show today and this week. Andrea Salenzi produces, and she's a refreshing splash of sweetness for your taste buds. Just the ticket to keeping you icy cool in the heat. Andy Bowers, oft described as a doubly tasty sensation of sweet and salted caramel in your cup of hot chocolate, is also known as the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You could subscribe in iTunes where reviews greatly help us. And if you know someone who would like the gist, point them to the gist. The gist is in the daily feed of the Slate Podcast but also we have our own feed. We recommend you sign up for that one. Thank you a lot for that. We have an email we'll send to you and you can play the show off the email. It's slate.com slash gist email. Email us at thegist at slate.com. And you know, I gotta say, between your rich flavor and cool refreshment, you, our listeners, are simply irresistible. So thanks for listening.